I've spent a fair portion of my life chasing after applause, fantasizing about wealth, and taking it easy. Ease, wealth, and applause. Call them my personal holy trinity. And for the longest time, I didn't question these preoccupations. They seemed pretty much in line with what the culture around me valued, the trappings of a conventional life. But after years of serving these three ideals, doubt began to gnaw at me. What if the pursuit of this trinity was the reason I was so unhappy? What if ease, wealth, and applause weren't my friends, but my enemies? This question grew so unavoidable that one day in my 20s, I made a radical choice. I packed a bag and walked out of my life. Not because of a fire or a death or some other tragedy. I just went away. And for three and a half years, I stayed away, letting the rat race pass me by. Okay, this is vague. What am I even talking about? Where did I go and what was this radical choice? Well, that story a little later. I'm David Sadson, and I'm a loser with a podcast about losers. People who ran for president of the United States and lost. This episode is about a man who also made a drastic choice. On the outside, he had it all. A life of relative wealth, a good bit of ease, and doing all the right things to get applause from all the right people. But then one day, he walked out of his life. He joined a radical movement. And while my decision confused a lot of friends and family, his choice caused so much agitation, it nearly got him killed. But because he knew his enemy, because he had lived that old life, he was confident when it came to facing this danger and fighting his enemy. So confident that he won enough admirers to eventually run for president of the United States. Twice. Not to win the office, mind you, but to win victory for his movement. This is the story of an outcast who refused to play by certain rules. This is the story of bondage broken. This is the story of James G. Burney. Cincinnati was furious. James Burney had just come to town. This was no ordinary man. You see, Burney was a troublemaker, a radical, an abolitionist. He wanted to abolish slavery. And not only that, he had the nerve to spread his radical anti-slavery ideas by publishing an abolitionist newspaper right here in Cincinnati. Something had to be done, and soon. And so city leaders organized a meeting in a courthouse. This is Ken Ellingwood. I'm a journalist. Uh, I was a correspondent for many years with the Los Angeles Times. He writes books now, and he tells this story in his 2021 book, First to Fall, Elijah Lovejoy and the Fight for a Free Press in the Age of Slavery. Elijah Lovejoy is another abolitionist. James Burney also features prominently in Ellingwood's book. Ellingwood describes how in Cincinnati, in the year 1836, James Burney and his abolitionist newspaper were the talk of the town. It became apparent that Burney was going to, you know, continue with his newspaper. And so city leaders organized a meeting in a courthouse on January 22nd, 1836, so a few weeks after the launch of his newspaper. It's cold outside, your typical Cincinnati January. But inside the courthouse, things were heating up. The whole place was packed from the bench up to the gallery, the men standing in the windowsills. Uh, the, the mayor of the city, uh, Samuel Davies, is presiding over this meeting. This is not just a, a, a bunch of random guys from Cincinnati. This was 
a meeting called by the leading lights of the city. And there were people making speeches, calling him a supporter of race mixing and saying he favored treason and accusing him of all kinds of things. To be an abolitionist in the 1830s was to be seen as an extremist in a place like Cincinnati, a border city up against the South. You had financial interests coupled with this emotionally charged message that abolitionists were out to undo the country. But there was one thing these men packed into the Cincinnati courthouse did not realize. James Burney, he was in the room. He decides that he, with his son, will attend this meeting. And uh, he arrives to find the courthouse where the meeting was held, completely mobbed by people, kind of works his way through the crowd to get in and take his seat. So he's in this very tumultuous setting, and the meeting takes place. And finally, at a moment, Bernie asks for a chance to talk. And he said, you know, I'm James Bernie, and I'm here to speak. I imagine there was a reaction? Yeah, there was, um, you know, there was sort of, you know, mixed <laughs> a reaction to him. I think there was shock and then the realization that, you know, this is the guy. This is, this is the devil that we're talking about. The devil. Rising up to speak in a courthouse full of people who had just been calling for his death. But this man didn't look like a devil. He was a middle-aged white guy. Blue eyes, brown hair, average height, well-dressed. Nobody guessed that in a few years, this man would run for president of the United States. Twice. That would come later. So there were shouts of anger when he rose to speak. But there was also grudging respect. The son of a bitch showed up. So they let him talk. Maybe they expected him to lash out or beg for mercy. But they did not expect what they actually got. For Bernie to stand, look his enemy in the eye, and explain how and why he became an abolitionist. For 45 minutes, the courthouse quasi-mob sat on their fury and listened as James G. Burney told his story. The story of James Gillespie Burney starts in Kentucky, where he was born on February 4th, 1792. He grew up on an estate in Kentucky, His father owned slaves? Yep, you heard right. James Burney, slavery abolitionist, his father owned slaves. His father, James Burney Sr., had made a small fortune in bagging and rope manufacturing, and so the Burneys enjoyed the advantages of a typical aristocratic family in Kentucky. If you were white and you had the means, it's a fair bet you had slaves. Burney's playmate was an enslaved boy on the estate, which was called Woodlawn. Michael, Bernie's slave playmate, had been given to him by his grandfather when he was six. Now, if all this wasn't confusing enough, Bernie's father, while owning slaves, wanted to end slavery. I mean, gradually, but still. That is to say, his father really wasn't a slavery defender. He was, in fact, um, inclined to see slavery not... Um, allowed in Kentucky. That effort failed, and he continued to um, keep enslaved people on his estate 
even though his own sister, that is James Burney's aunt, who lived there as well, um, refused to accept any work uh, by these people without paying them. She was very much opposed to slavery. So Burney grew up in an environment where he was getting, you know, different signals about enslavement. Um, his father, at best, he was torn. His aunt, who was essentially the woman who raised Bernie after the death of his mother, his aunt was dead set against slavery. You know, I always assumed that people who owned slaves uh, wanted slavery to be legal. Yeah, you'd think their economic interests would argue in favor of their finding a rationale. The idea that a person would own slaves and yet see the institution as doomed eventually was not that unusual. The South came around to a position where the argument started to sound like this, that we shouldn't free enslaved people because they have a good and happy life, that there is a positive benefit. And so this positive good philosophy became much more prominent in the 1830s than it had been earlier. Earlier, like during Bernie's childhood, the 1790s into the early 1800s, when it was a bit easier to openly question slavery in Kentucky. Betty Fladeland, Bernie's biographer, wrote about this period that, quote, slavery was confusing to Bernie, but he accepted it. This confusion was further fueled by Bernie's experiences at Princeton, the prestigious New Jersey college where he began studying in 1808 when he was 16. His classmates came from all over, the North and the South, and as young college students tended to do, they held debates, arguing all kinds of issues, including the morality of slavery. Many of Bernie's classmates, and even the teachers and administrators at Princeton, were opposed to slavery. Some even challenged the idea that slaves were biologically inferior to their masters. Crazy. Of course, other students disagreed. Now, there's no evidence this clash of ideas sharpened and clarified the issue for Bernie. Not yet. It seems he had other priorities. He was suspended from Princeton, twice, for drinking. After being reinstated the second time, Bernie finally graduated in 1810, at the age of 18. Bear with me now for just a bit more summary, okay? Bernie's father, Bernie Sr., wanted his son to be a public man, a great man. So Bernie Jr. continued his studies, becoming a lawyer at age 22. But a great man needs more than a career. He needs a family. So a couple years later, in 1816, Bernie married a young woman from a prominent Kentucky family, Agatha McDowell. The McDowells and Bernie Sr. gave the young couple a grand wedding gift for their new household, slaves. Next, Bernie dabbled in politics, serving briefly in the Kentucky State Legislature. But he was restless. So in 1818, he moved with his family to what was then known as the Territory of Alabama. Which was then a kind of a in-vogue place for people in the South to find, you know, cheap land and, and find their fortunes. Bernie bought a slice of this cheap land. He wanted to make a go at being a Southern gentleman planter. But planting cotton isn't easy. So by 1821, he'd purchased 19 more slaves. 
combined with his earlier wedding gift slaves and his childhood playmate, Michael, now also an adult, plus new children born of many of these slaves. This now made James Burney, eventual abolitionist, the owner of 43 slaves. He had become his future enemy. However, Burney sold most of his slaves and his plantation a couple years later in 1823, but not for moral reasons. He was in debt. His cotton crop failed one year. He made some other bad land investments. And alongside the drinking, he had a gambling habit, betting on horse races. So he gave up the plantation life to focus on his law practice. This worked. He paid off his debts and moved into a nice brick house on a corner lot in Huntsville, Alabama, complete with a beautiful lawn, a flower garden, and his household slaves, Michael and Michael's family. He was now married with children. You see, the journey from slaveholder to abolitionist was not sudden for Bernie. It was gradual, and it involved the crossing of three thresholds. We now come to the first threshold in the late 1820s when Bernie got religion. Now, the 1820s, and this is a period we're talking about when Bernie you know, undergoes a spiritual conversion, was a time of huge um, religious energy taking the form of religious revivals, evangelical meetings, camp meetings, meetings, you know, there would be thousands of people who would gather in the forests or at different um, farms or, or in churches. One of the outcomes of this great religious flowering was a kind of social energy or social activism energy, a temperance movement, you know, the movement against alcoholic beverages, gets a boost during this time. And some people turn their religious evangelical energy to the cause of anti-slavery. And this was the case for Bernie. At first, he eases into the anti-slavery movement. He learned about something called the American Colonization Society. Their big idea, remove black people from the U.S. and ship them off to a colony set up in Liberia, West Africa. Yep, this was an actual thing. You see, a lot of white Americans at the time were very uneasy with um, the idea of emancipation. So this society promoted this idea that sounded all very merciful. And it was a kind of the, a, a half measure. It, you're not asking for immediate emancipation. So you're, you're avoiding all of that potential disruption. And by offering this remedy that, well, you basically just remove blacks from America and send people to a continent where they've never been before, in most cases, you are you know, addressing this, this big concern about what happens if two plus million people, and then you know, later the number would grow to four million, um, what to do with all of them. Seems perfectly reasonable. So Bernie got the colonization fever. He donated to the society, convinced his Presbyterian church to make an annual donation every 4th of July. Then, a few years later in 1832, the Colonization Society sent him a letter, offered him a job, a thousand bucks a year, plus expenses, to travel around the South, promoting the society's ideas. It's a pay cut. He was making 4000 a year as a lawyer. His wife, Agatha, wasn't thrilled. But he thought it was for a noble cause and he could address his fellow Southerners with some authority as a slaveholder himself. So he took the gig, and he threw himself into the work. 
but the work would become its own undoing. Here's how. He traveled throughout the South, this was now 1832 and 1833, speaking on behalf of the society. He also wrote essays hyping up colonization. He even chartered a ship, got dozens of former slaves and descendants of slaves to board that ship and actually immigrate to Liberia, like a proof of concept, a spark to light the fire. The spark fizzled. And for the most part, all these efforts fell on deaf ears, and sometimes hostile ears. So in late 1833, Bernie changed his approach. Maybe attitudes in the Deep South were too entrenched. Maybe he'd have better luck in a border state like his childhood home, Kentucky. So Bernie, along with his wife and now five surviving children, they had previously lost three children, they all moved back to their home state. And it is during this period back in Kentucky when we come to threshold number two. Bernie got knowledge. He starts reading up on abolitionist movements elsewhere. The British barred slavery in in the early 1830s. He starts reading up on all of those parliamentary debates. And he starts to see how the American Colonization Society is really just a sham and began to see this as just kind of a solve for slavery forces that didn't really want to address the moral issues of slavery and were just kind of buying time with it. It's not solving any problems. Bernie's teetering right on the edge now between colonization and full-blown abolitionism. All he needed was that last little nudge across threshold number three. And he got it in the spring of 1834 when Bernie got inspired. Something big was happening in a little theological college just outside Cincinnati, Ohio. For 18 nights, students at Lane Seminary held a series of discussions debating colonization versus so-called immediatism, the immediate and complete freeing of all slaves. They called it a debate, but truthfully, no one was defending slavery or colonization. It was more like a religious revival. And it was significant because this was the first time a major discussion like this had happened publicly. Bernie read about it in The Emancipator, an abolitionist newspaper. He realized this was the very debate he'd been having with himself. So he went to Ohio, went to Lane Seminary, and talked to these students. After seeing the evils of slavery firsthand, after realizing the sham that was colonization firsthand, this was the final nudge he needed. He decided then and there that he would go back home to Kentucky and start his new life as an abolitionist. And he would begin with one simple act. On the morning of June 2nd, 1834, James Burney made an announcement. He summoned his lifelong slave, Michael, along with Michael's family, his wife and three children. Burney called for his own family, too, as witnesses. And he has written out this declaration, this certificate, and disavows slavery and provides each of these people with a document that provides their emancipation, even agrees to pay um, back wages. Michael used those back wages to set up a business in Louisville, Kentucky, stabling horses. What did this mean for James Burney? He is formally out of the role of slave owner and formally into the role of an abolitionist. Being an abolitionist meant that you were for the immediate abolition of slavery. It's a radical position in mid-19th century America. This is Manisha Sinha. And I'm the Draper Chair in American History at the University of Connecticut. She is the author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. 
and she's here to help us understand the implications of Bernie's choice. As an abolitionist, you don't just believe slavery should end. You also believe, at least formally, in black equality and equal black rights. Now that is is really something unusual. And there are a few prominent slaveholders who convert to abolition. And what they find, like Bernie, is that they can no longer live in the South and be an abolitionist because the South becomes an increasingly closed society when it comes to the issue of slavery in the 19th century. You know, they're lynching suspected abolitionists, they're burning their press, they're burning abolitionist literature in the mail. There's no freedom of press, speech, or thought when it comes to the issue of slavery in the South. So slaveholders like Bernie who become abolitionists and who in a way uh, give up their slaveholding patrimony have to move north. Bernie wanted to start an abolitionist newspaper in Kentucky, but the community reaction was fierce. To quote a letter he received at the time, you injure yourself, you injure society at large, you injure the slaves themselves, you do good to none. So Bernie decided to move across the Ohio River to Cincinnati, where he thought he could more safely establish his newspaper, which he would call The Philanthropist. And this brings us back near the start of the episode, that packed Cincinnati courthouse in 1836. By now, James Bernie, devil in the flesh, had been telling his life story and making his case for the evils of slavery for 45 minutes. The courthouse crowd had finally had enough. They began shouting again, Kill him, drag him out. The mayor, Davies, suggested he stop, so Bernie stopped. He gave his thanks and walked out, the crowd parting for him as he left. He expects that the mob is going to attack him at home, and fortunately, they do not on this occasion show up at his his house. But um, this sets off what would be months of controversy in Cincinnati that would only get more intense and end a bit more violent as the year went on. A bit violent is an understatement. Just a few months later, Cincinnati would explode in violence. The story of this explosion and how it would lead to Bernie running for president when we return. A friend of Bernie wrote this in his eulogy. When he became an abolitionist, he freely sacrificed ease, wealth, and the applause of his contemporaries. Unquote. Now I hesitate to compare myself to the man. I've never really fought for something noble like abolition. But I was drawn to his story because I know what it's like to go against the grain and to sacrifice some measure of ease, wealth, and applause. This is the story I teased earlier. You see, I read a book about meditation in my 20s. Then I actually tried meditating, and I liked it. Which is why, in my late 20s, I was considering dropping out of my life to go work and live at a meditation retreat center. The choice was this. Stay in New York City, keep struggling as an out-of-work actor, drifting from one temp job to another to pay the bills, and suffering all the rejection that comes from chasing applause and success, or get off the hamster wheel, because I was going nowhere and I was exhausted. I wished I could split myself in two, make both choices, with none of the sacrifice. But I couldn't. So I sold a bunch of stuff, handed over my roommates and my share of the house to a friend, 
packed a few bags, and got on a train to Vermont. I was going to be a program coordinator, kind of like a cruise director, except instead of a cruise, I'd be guiding people through their retreat for a weekend or a week up to a month. It was a job, but it was also its own kind of retreat. In the middle of nowhere, no phone reception. There was internet, but it was slow. So for those keeping score, ease, without the normal comforts, was challenging. The pay was just a token stipend. Since I was living there, my expenses were covered, so no wealth. And since this place was designed to starve your ego, applause wasn't forthcoming. There wasn't much else to do besides meditate, eat, sleep, and work. I stuck it out for three and a half years. I did a lot of living in those years. Fell in love, I think. Fell out of love, I guess. Lost weight. Drank too much. They weren't uptight about that kind of thing. In the end, was it worth it? Good question. Like Bernie, it was a sacrifice. But unlike Bernie, my sacrifice was not inspired by moral courage or noble rebellion. More like desperation. So I think it's fair to first examine how it worked out for him. Prepare yourself. It's about to get wild. After addressing his enemies in that Cincinnati courthouse in January 1836, 43-year-old James Burney went home with tensions still simmering. But there was no violence. Not that night. The violence would come six months later. First, on July 12, 1836, late at night, a few dozen men broke into a print shop owned by a man named Achilles Pugh. Pugh had the contract and the equipment to print Bernie's abolitionist newspaper, The Philanthropist. For two hours, this mob ransacked the place, tore up the printing press, and carted off the pieces. But this was just the appetizer. The main course came 18 days later on July 30th. Once again, Ken Ellingwood. By the end of the month of July, the climate around Bernie's newspaper uh, has grown all the more charged and polarized. The newspapers in Cincinnati are taking on a very militant and hostile tone against Bernie, whipping up the fever against Bernie and his newspaper. And Bernie, he's not hiding away. He's got a newspaper office, or he's got his, his anti-slavery office, because we should remember, Bernie was publishing this newspaper because he was working for the Ohio Anti-Slavery Society. In other words, the Ohio Anti-Slavery Society was his job. His weapon was a newspaper, and his newspaper office said right on it, anti-slavery office. Uh, so it wasn't like, oh, you know, where we find this? <laughs> where would we find this guy? Um, a mob gathers on the 30th of July. Dozens of people gather in front of this hotel. They march over to the to the newspaper, the downtown newspaper office, and was this during the day at this point, or, or that it started, or was this at night? Just to set the scene. Um, by this point, there it's at night. Yeah, got it. They go into the office. They smash everything, just as they had done three weeks earlier um, when they attacked his his printer's office. There was a press in this office. They smashed it to pieces. And then they tossed those pieces into the Ohio River. Next. The mob goes to a couple of different places uh, to try to find first Pew, then they go to another member of the Anti-Slavery Society. Then they eventually go to Bernie's house 
but he's not there. Um, he was actually off doing a lecture somewhere else. They take a break. They go get some drinks at a place. And I'm sorry. <laughs> they they took a break for drinks. <laughs> it's hard to put oneself in their place and try to figure out, you know, in the in this kind of orgy of violence, how you find, uh, oh, uh, you know, I'm thirsty. Let's go get a drink. But um, it was, you know, obviously a sign of the impunity of the crowd. They didn't have anything to worry about. They obviously weren't worried about somebody stopping them or arresting them or, or anything of that sort. So the, the police never showed up. The police never showed up. Um, in fact, the only figure, uh, you know, or the most obvious figure of authority in the city is, is the mayor, Samuel Davies. He actually takes part in all of this mess. Really? This is also after they've rampaged through a black neighborhood. They didn't kill anybody, but they trashed some buildings. Um, after hours of this, it was the mayor who finally says it's time for everybody to go home. And in his words, we have done enough for one night. Bernie learned about the violence and his ruined printing press after returning from his lecture three days later. For over a week, he changed where he slept. Crashing with different friends and acquaintances until he was sure the tensions had cooled and the mob had been sated. But you know what's interesting? A lot of the abolitionist literature the mob tossed into the street kept doing its job. A mechanic grabbed a bunch of books, then after reading them, went to the trouble of returning them to Bernie. A printing of one of Bernie's speeches converted a family of four to abolition. And this was all just a hint of a broader backlash. The slave power, that is, the, the, the South and the defenders of slavery, were in effect, uh, through their violence, through their attempts to muzzle the press, through their attempts to um, prevent any discussion of slavery by using violent means, they were endangering the rights of white Americans so that if people weren't necessarily moved by the moral wrong of slavery or moved by the idea of the suffering of millions of enslaved people, they should at least be moved by the threat to their own constitutional rights that was represented by the attempts to, you know, muzzle the press. And so by, by seeing his newspaper smashed to bits and having that make the news, and it did make the news, Bernie said, hey, it's good press. The way he put it? It has made abolitionists by the thousands, while the paper, by its own unaided efficiency, was making them by tens. Mm. After the incident publication of his paper resumed and was even more successful, so much so that Bernie could afford to bring on more staff, which freed him up for more traveling and lecturing, which he did throughout the remainder of 1836 into 1837. Bernie's family, however, were not as optimistic. Bernie Sr. told his son Bernie in a letter that he was burdening his children, Sr.'s grandchildren, with a most destructive heritage and wrote, I dislike slavery as much as you, but to abolish it at present by the efforts of a few fanatical men shows, I think, a very limited view of human nature. He threatened to stop communicating with his son if publication of The Philanthropist didn't cease. As for his wife, she was reluctant about the prospect of yet another move. 
You see, in 1837, Bernie was offered a higher position in the American Anti-Slavery Society, which would mean moving from Ohio to New York City. Bernie was also reluctant to take on the job. Disagreements among the society's leaders threatened to splinter the abolitionist movement. That's a whole other story. And Bernie wasn't sure he was up to the task of managing such a schism. But in the summer of 1837, he and his wife answered the call of duty and moved. This move did allow for a reconciliation between Bernie and his father, who was relieved that at least in New York, Bernie would be safe from the kind of violence that had plagued him in Ohio. So father and son remained close, but so did tragedy, which was right around the corner. In the fall of 1838, Bernie's wife, Agatha, died after a recent bout of tuberculosis and the loss of another baby. In all, she had birthed 11 children, six of whom were still living. The following year, in 1839, Bernie Sr. died. Despite their reconciliation, Bernie knew he had disappointed his father by becoming a radical. His father had always dreamed his son would be a great man, respected and honored, not persecuted and rejected. But you know what? After his father died, Bernie inherited his 21 slaves. Selling them to another owner would have netted him about $12,000. That's nearly $400,000 in today's money. But Bernie didn't sell them. He freed them. A hometown newspaper, Kentucky's Protestant and Herald, praised the act. I wonder if this was the kind of respect Bernie Sr. would have wanted for his son. I also can't tell if it was mercy or tragedy that Bernie's two closest critics, his wife and father, died just before 1840 just before Bernie assumed his highest profile in the abolitionist movement, presidential candidate. Bernie's experiences as an abolitionist leader in the 1830s absolutely contributed to his appeal as a candidate. This is Corey Brooks. Associate Professor of History at York College of Pennsylvania, where I am the chairperson of the Department of History and Political Science. He wrote a book called Liberty Power anti-slavery third parties, and the transformation of American politics. In 1840, leading abolitionists who wanted to pursue political action formed a new anti-slavery political party called the Liberty Party. Professor Brooks makes the connection between the Cincinnati mob back in 1836 and the Liberty Party deciding to run Bernie for president in 1840. The fact that he had had to face these threats and stand down that personal danger and also right lose his press made him probably a better known figure, a sympathetic figure. And he's educated, you know, he uh, studied at Princeton. Again, fellow historian and professor Manisha Sinha. He was a practicing lawyer. Most uh, 19th century American politicians were lawyers like Bernie and Lincoln. I think Bernie was also an appealing and interesting figure because he himself had been a slaveholder and had come to renounce that. And remember, he had also been a professional colonizationist. And then he takes on the colonizationists. He writes letters on colonization. He debates the colonizationists. And he's good at that because he, after all, had been one. So he really knows Uh, what their agenda is. Among those in anti-slavery circles, he was a, a known and respected figure. For all these reasons, the Liberty Party chose Bernie as their man. 
Okay, a very brief summary of what happened with Bernie in the elections of 1840 and 1844. By and large, the major parties... At the time, these were the Whig and Democratic parties. The major parties didn't give a lot of attention uh, to the third party nomination because it wasn't much of a threat. The Liberty Party wasn't terribly organized. Bernie was, I think in the beginning, he's a reluctant candidate. I think he saw his nomination as virtually symbolic because instead of campaigning, he's at the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London. Uh, the vote total was small. Massachusetts was the only state uh, in which the Liberty ticket won more than 1% of the vote. And Massachusetts was one of the most pro-abolition states in the country. While Bernie was battling seasickness on the trip back from England, the Whig Party candidate, William Henry Harrison, was celebrating his electoral victory over the Democrat, Martin Van Buren. Harrison would die a month into his office. That's another story. Bernie ran again in 1844, but between 1840 and 1844, Bernie got remarried. His new wife was Elizabeth Fitzhugh, the sister of an old college friend, and she fully shared Bernie's anti-slavery views. They left New York together and relocated to Michigan. Bernie continued traveling, lecturing, and writing, but he also got some well-deserved rest in those intervening years, which was helpful because... By 1844, I think he may take a more active role, and is perceived as more of a threat. In an election that figured to be a very close one, and turned out to be a very close one. And so the Liberty Party campaigned hard against both Clay and Polk. That would be Henry Clay, the Whig, and James Polk, the Democrat. In other words... The Liberty Party denounced both of them. Even though many, perhaps somewhat plausibly, argued that Clay's policy positions with respect to slavery were more moderate. Which is why many anti-slavery Whigs, who were perhaps sympathetic to Bernie, preferred to vote for Clay, the mainstream Whig candidate, because they knew Bernie had no chance of actually winning. And many of them actually blame the Liberty Party and Bernie for Henry Clay's loss. But Bernie voters responded to this finger-pointing with just total disdain for the idea that they should have been expected to vote for Henry Clay, right? This slaveholder who, you know, had at best been sort of willing to compromise to get slaveholders at least some of what they wanted in national politics every step of his career. While Bernie might have been an annoyance to anti-slavery Whigs, his future in the abolitionist third-party movement was bright. After his modest but improved showing in 1844, his name was already being offered up to run again for president four years later. And in 1845, he was nominated to run as a liberty candidate for governor of Michigan. When he traveled to Cincinnati in 1845 to speak at an anti-slavery convention, he was met with thunderous applause. It's striking, then, that this speech in Cincinnati home of that anti-abolitionist mob nine years earlier, would be the last speech James Burney ever gave. In August of 1845, Burney was riding through his fields near his Michigan home when he was thrown off his horse. Burney got back up and rode home. He seemed to be okay, until a few hours later when he suffered a severe, paralyzing stroke. For weeks, Burney was confined to his bed, his mind was sharp, but he could not speak. Gradually, some of his strength and speech returned until the next stroke and the next one. For 12 years until his death, Bernie struggled with his health. He would never again deliver a lecture. He would never again run for office. 
He spent his remaining days watching from the sidelines and writing and thinking, was it worth it? At times, he saw the lack of progress and felt discouraged. He wrote letters wondering if black people would in fact be better off leaving the country, not because the old colonizationists had been right, but because he thought whites were too callous and they'd never let things change. But in the end, he had reasons to be optimistic. Why? The nomination of Bernie, which right, became the occasion for an abolitionist third-party politics, was an incredibly consequential shift, or at least laid the groundwork for an incredibly consequential shift that would transpire in the landscape of, of American politics. Bernie saw this shift lead to the emergence of a new anti-slavery third party in 1848, the Free Soil Party. The Free Soil Party was more moderate, a watered-down liberty party, but it was bigger, and it actually elected congressmen and senators who pushed the anti-slavery issue further into national politics. Bernie then saw an even broader anti-slavery coalition emerge in the 1850s, the Republican Party. Bernie did not live long enough to see this Republican Party win with Abraham Lincoln in 1860, followed by civil war and the eventual end of chattel slavery. He did not live long enough to see five of his sons and one grandson serve in the Union Army or to see four of those sons die from wounds or disease contracted in their service. Before all that happened, James G. Bernie died in November 1857. He was 65. When making the choice to sacrifice ease, wealth, and applause, I imagine it helps to know in advance that that sacrifice will be worth it. But there's no real way to know. When I dropped out of my life for three and a half years, I thought I'd be leaving my old self, the wreckage of my old life, behind. But that part of me was still in me. Only now I had to confront it day after day. So during those years, I got to know my enemy, myself, pretty well. I came to appreciate that the wreckage which had been my life was actually the foundation for what was to come. Just like a violent mob's wreckage inspired what was to come for James G. Burney. Now, when I imagine his reaction when he saw the remains of his printing press tossed in the Ohio River by an angry mob, I get it. It's a powerful thing to confront the literal wreckage of your life and smile. Special thanks to Ken Ellingwood. He's the author of First to Fall, Elijah Lovejoy, and the Fight for a Free Press in the Age of Slavery. Special thanks also to historians Manisha Sinha and Corey Brooks. You know, there's a lot more to say about the abolitionists. There's a whole subplot I only touched on about the different factions within the abolitionist movement. Not all of them agreed that getting involved in politics was the best way. You can learn more about the movement including its struggles and conflicts, both internally and more broadly, in Professor Sinha's book, The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition, and Professor Brooks' book, Liberty Power, Anti-Slavery Third Parties, and the Transformation of American Politics. This podcast was written and produced by me, with dramaturgy by Dr. Shane Bro, additional assistance by Brian Waddell, and the invaluable feedback of many others. Music by Artlist. If you enjoyed the podcast, give us a follow, leave a review, and please tell a friend. Word of mouth is huge when it comes to these things. In the meantime, this is David Sadsen suggesting you hug the loser in your life, even if it's you.